It's 6 p.m. and you are listening to Community Radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Thursday, May 27th, 2021. I'm Claudio Mendonca, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. As the state continues to mourn the lives lost in yesterday's shooting in San Jose, the California report covers the reaction from the governor and other officials and then explores the wider context of mass shootings in California. After a brief look at regional news and weather, we'll listen to this week's Hospitality House's Needs of the Week, followed by Bravehearts. This week, host Betty Louise visits Interfaith Food Ministry to speak with Executive Director Phil Alonzo and Development Director Naomi Cabral. We close with an essay by Molly Fisk. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. The San Jose community remains in a state of shock following yesterday's mass shooting at a Valley Transportation Authority light rail yard when a gunman killed nine people before turning the gun on himself. The ninth victim died late last night. 49-year-old Alex Fritsch had been hospitalized in critical condition. Governor Gavin Newsom spoke in San Jose hours after the shooting. He praised the law enforcement response, but lamented yet another incident of mass bloodshed in the state and country. What the hell's going on in the United States of America? What the hell's wrong with us? And when are we going to come to grips with this? When are we going to put down our arms, literally and figuratively, our politics, Stale rhetoric, finger pointing, all a hand wringing consternation that produces nothing except more fury and frustration, more scenes like this repeated over and over. Again, that's Governor Gavin Newsom. The victims have been identified by the coroner's office and they range in age from 29 to 63. Among them is 36 year old Topdish Deep Singh, who leaves behind a wife and two children. His cousin spoke to reporters yesterday afternoon after co-workers told the family about Singh's heroism. One lady he put in the, in the control room to hide over here, you know. Um, he can go there too, actually, but he, uh, he just saved her. And then after that, he go towards the downstairs, you know. The other victims are 42-year-old Paul Magia, 29-year-old Adrian Baeza, 35-year-old Jose Hernandez III, 49-year-old Timothy Romo, 40-year-old Michael Runamentkin, 63-year-old Abdul Vahab Al-Gamandan, and 63-year-old Lars Lane. Investigators have released few details about the gunman, 57-year-old Samuel Cassidy, other than he was a VTA employee. And some more perspective. In California this year alone, there have been mass shooting incidents in Santa Barbara, Oakland, Orange, San Francisco, Yuba City, San Diego, Stockton, Hemet, Los Angeles, and Compton. And now San Jose is added to this grim list. The Gun Violence Archive defines a mass shooting as any incident where there's a minimum of four people who have been either killed or injured. That includes the perpetrator. Support for the California Report comes from Blue Shield of California, closing the health care gap since 1939. Learn more about their commitment to quality and fair health care for every Californian at news.blueshieldca.com. Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. 
on the web at theschmidt.org. And returning to the shooting in San Jose, to find out more about the trauma that could impact survivors, the California Report's Keith Mizuguchi spoke with Melissa Breimer, Director of Terrorism and Disaster Programs at the UCLA Duke National Center for Child Traumatic Stress. I believe the perpetrator was known to everybody, and this was a fellow coworker. And that sense of betrayal of knowing somebody and that person has created harm to you is something that's also going to have to be processed. And for those that worked with that individual, trying to think through were warning signs missed? Was there anything that could be done to prevent the situation? And so appreciating that level is is important because we saw this, um, frankly, in San Bernardino after the December uh, shooting a, a few years ago. And some of the trauma is not immediate, correct? They may not show signs for weeks, but something eventually hits them. Absolutely. It's important for us to have services and supports for those who are having those reactions currently and need support right now. But we know that there's going to be folks that don't know that they need support till later on, especially those who are are grieving right now. They're processing that their loved one's not returning home. They are trying to think of ways to let family members or other loved ones know what happened. They typically don't even get to really start grieving until weeks later. What should friends, family, or loved ones be doing right now? There's normally a rush to comfort people and ask them if they need help, but that may not be the best way to handle this type of trauma. You're absolutely correct. First, listen. Let the person that has been through this uh, incident be able to dictate how much they want to talk about it or Sometimes they just don't want to be alone and want somebody near them. And so I always let them dictate how much they want to talk about it. Or do they need help um, with, for example, parenting or other things that they just maybe may not uh, feel up to it. And so being that, that listening ear and We know that there are tons of different reactions. There could be different feelings. There could be sleep difficulties. And we don't want to jump that anyone who's struggling right now is going to have long-term impairments. But what we can say is, given that you're struggling right now, would it be helpful to talk to your physician or a mental health provider What are some of the things survivors can expect to feel during this period of mourning? Some might be experiencing nightmares. Other reactions that we might hear people talk about is just that difficulty paying attention, concentrating, almost like people have told me that they almost feel like they're in a fog or a daze. Others, when I've talked to people who have been through mass violence, could have a range of feelings that could be because of the grief that I described earlier. It could be uh, sadness or complete anger or rage because they feel like warning signs were missed, whether it's from the community, from their employer, or from other coworkers. And there could be 
outrage about how this could even happen. That was Melissa Brimer, Director of Terrorism and Disaster Programs at the UCLA Duke National Center for Child Traumatic Stress. Melissa, thanks so much for your time today. Absolutely. And that was KQED's Keith Mizuguchi. And that's the California Report for Thursday, May 27th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening and have a good day. CAL FIRE engines were guided from the air to what's being called the Caskey Fire, above Cascade Shores and off Caskey Road. But when they got there, it wasn't long before the word was that ground resources were making good progress after 800 pounds of fire retardant were dropped in the area. By just after 2.30 this afternoon, they'd stopped forward progress of the fire. Crews are expected to be on scene for four to six further hours. That, according to Ubinet. And now looking at regional weather, in Nevada City and Grass Valley, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 53, Friday will be sunny with a high near 83. The National Weather Service has issued an excessive heat watch taking effect Sunday afternoon and continuing through Tuesday evening. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 38, Friday should be sunny with a high near 73. Sacramento, Woodland, and the surrounding region will also fall under the excessive heat watch beginning Sunday and going through Tuesday evening. In that region, tonight mostly clear, with a low around 57. Friday, sunny, with a high near 91. Next, let's listen to Hospitality House's needs for the week, and then Bravehearts. This week, Betty Louise speaks with Interfaith Food Ministries Executive Director, Phil Alonzo, and Development Director, Naomi Campbell. Hi, I'm Christina Abkarian, Marketing and Development Specialist at Hospitality House. Hospitality House is a year-round emergency homeless shelter for the general homeless community in Nevada County. Thank you to everyone that gave towards the May Match Challenge of up to $25,000. Your donations will help ensure people in crisis continue to have direct access to emergency shelter, food, PPE, job training, customized case management, and all the tools and support needed to return to stable housing. Thanks to you, we achieved our match goal and continue to stand strong for our community. And now on to the needs of the shelter for this week are PPE mask and gloves, blankets, twin size, new pillows, bottled water, women's underwear, sizes small, medium, and large, men's underwear boxers, sizes medium, large, and extra large, shampoo and conditioner, travel size, travel bags, duffel bags, and backpacks. Please drop off urgent items or mail them to Utah's Place located in Brunswick Basin past the DMV at 1262 Sutton Way in Grass Valley. For a tax receipt, please ring the doorbell and wait for someone to come outside to assist you. We greatly appreciate the community's help. In the words of Utah Phillips, if we all stick together, we'll all get what we need. Thank you.
Welcome to this edition of Brave Hearts, where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis. We are your hosts, William Wallace and Betty Louise, and these are the Brave Hearts. Welcome, this is Betty Louise. We're here for another episode of Brave Hearts. I'm on location at the Interfaith Food Ministry. I'm here with Phil Alonzo and Naomi Cabral, and they both are staff members here. And so we're here to learn about IFM, which is the acronym they use and to hear a little bit about your stories. So Phil, why don't you start? How did you arrive? And, and tell us what you do here. Absolutely, thank you, Betty, for having us. Um, I'm the executive director here at Interfaith Food Ministry. I've been here about three years now. It's been a journey here. Um, I grew up in the East Bay area and was a, in a big family and my parents were always very accepting and compassionate and tolerant to all different types of people that came in and out of our lives and I was lucky enough to grow up in a house full of love and music and Mm. art and sports and all the various things that uh, a kid should hopefully have and you know I just that and some experiences in high school you know really led me I think to be in a career that was, uh, you know, helping people that are struggling mm-hmm. with with various things in their lives. Can you tell us one quick experience from high school? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, really, there was a few teachers that really had a big um, influence on me and some particular projects that really challenged us to view something that we had a long-held belief about through a different lens. Mm. And, um, you know, that really inspired me to just learn more about people that that needed help out there and and my place in the world to, to do something about it. One teacher in particularly, uh, and, and he was particularly focused on international uh, issues, and so that really, uh, you know, struck a chord with me as well. So, you know, yeah, just, just having my eyes opened, I think, to the world at a right time when I was an impressionable teenager mm-hmm. and, you know, thinking about college and thinking about what I wanted to do, uh, you know, for a career, and, and, that's, and that's really led me here. That is awesome. I'm so happy that you had such a loving home that you grew up in because you know that that makes all the difference. Absolutely. So Naomi, tell us your story. What do you do here at IFM and how did you land here? Thank you, Betty Louise. Yes. Um, Well, I moved out here from the Bay Area seven years ago and um, want to back up a little bit. I grew up in a family of eight in San Joaquin Valley. And so my folks needed assistance. We had to use government assistance, you know, with uh, back then it was called food stamps. And so I remember that. Even though my both of my parents worked, it was still hard to make ends meet with a big family like that. And so I definitely um, had that kind of firsthand experience, um, understanding that people need help and Sometimes the government help isn't enough, you know, it wasn't like we got that much from from that. So the opportunity came to 
work in a nonprofit of this nature in social services, I definitely went for it. Um, my background is actually in art, and that's what I did in the Bay Area. So um, I had a really amazing education in fine art. And so I got into uh, working with artisans. Um, in other parts of the country, I was working for this great startup that helped women get out of women and girls get out of uh, sex slavery by selling their artisan products. And so I just that filled my heart. I was like, I need to help people. And so when I came to to Nevada County, I worked in crafts. I wasn't quite doing the work with the, with the uh, women in other countries, but um, that opportunity came to work at IFM as the development director. And that's what I do now um, here at IFM for the last, oh, just over two years. And it's been great. I, I do, I realize that the seed was planted and I love helping people. I love using my skills to help people and build community. And so that's how I'm here. Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well and be kind. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please visit calhum.org. And now, an essay by Molly Fisk, entitled, Looking at What You See. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. After an entire year of trying to coax myself to start painting again, oil painting, not house painting, which is what I really should be doing, I finally started What a mess it is, and wow, am I terrible at it. Everything looks like an outline instead of a solid object. And still lives, lives that used to be fun and challenging now seem impossible. I feel like my eyes don't work anymore, or my mind, or something. Granted, it's only been three days, but I'm shocked at how inept I became after stopping for a few years. I'm going to try again today because my favorite thing is to paint outdoors on the deck when it's not too hot. A brief window around here, since they're saying 90s next week. I'm not painting en plein air, which is when you paint what you see outside. I'm painting the Yuba from a photograph, but just doing it outdoors. I doubt this has a special name. What I love about painting is the lack of language. I'm pretty worded out these days. About all I can muster on social media is a bunch of heart emojis. So a few hours facing a Yuba photo or some peonies in a green vase and only talking briefly and sternly to Jack is wonderful. My cat Jack would like nothing more than to jump straight onto my palette and get oily paw prints all over the deck. I feel relaxed but alert, trying to remind my eyes to paint the real peony leaf folding over the edge of the glass and not some idea of a leaf that's stored in my head. This is really hard and such a great lesson for the rest of life. Not that I need any more lessons, thank you. I love mixing colors, too, and using weird ones I'd never wear or let into the house, like neon green, which amps up a peony leaf in exactly the right way, it turns out. I'm remembering things from the several years I painted regularly, too, such as where the light is coming from determining where the shadows lie, not just the glaze on a vase's lip and side. I made a few hilarious mistakes before I realized that I'd learned this once, 
and it was why one of my vase paintings was making me dizzy. With painting, you have to keep coming back to reality, to what you really see. The details confound and frustrate me. I took a painting of petunias in a glass by my cousin Miranda off the kitchen wall and carried it outside for a tutorial. She's a real painter. Her vase and the water in it and the two background colors were all shades of gray, and there was lots more paint than I'm using. It was almost gloppy in a wonderful way that made the picture exciting. The brushstrokes were obvious and luscious. I like the way stems in water are refracted and look unattached to the part of the stem above the water line. I have no idea how to replicate that on canvas, but I'm going to be working on it. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast tonight. We get support from Heartwood Eatery, organic cafe on Commercial Street, Nevada City, offering a seasonal menu of organic salads, grain bowls, toasts, and nourishing tonics, featuring local farmers and producers. Heartwood Eatery is open 10 to 4, closed on Mondays. And Lost and Found, offering secondhand, vintage, custom clothing, textiles, odds and ends, and more. Curated from around the region and world. Located at 107 South Church Street in Grass Valley. Stay tuned. The Climate Report with Martin Webb is next. And at 7 p.m., we return to our Strawberry Music Festival special coverage. Keep tuned and bury on. I'm Claudio Mendonça. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the music tonight and tomorrow, and I'll see you on Monday.